The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we are in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you an opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word that is so clear and precise in its uh, prophecies and other evidence of the fact that this is a word that has been revealed to man and not is not simply man's words about God. Father, we pray that as we study your word today, we could understand this uh, significant prophecy and its implications and that we may be encouraged by the reality that you control history even to the minutia. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to continue our study of this uh, significant prophecy referred to usually as Daniel's uh, 70 weeks or Daniel's 70th week. And that is because of its... Central importance uh, for understanding biblical prophecy and dispensations, God's plan for Israel. And I think it's also foundational because it shows that God has a future plan for Israel, that that excludes the church from that future plan for Israel. So that then implies that there is no church in Daniel's 70th week. So this is a foundational prophecy for many reasons. And therefore, I'm taking uh, some time to go through it and to deal with some of the implications that we found, find here. You began this last week by Memorex. How'd you like that? Did that work okay? Daniel 70th week. Let's just review the passage. Daniel 9:24 begins. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild 
Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat. Actually, that's plaza and, and trench or ditch, and that has to do with the foundation for the wall, even in or during times of distress. Verse 26 goes on to read, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, let's just review a couple of things on the first two verses, Daniel 9, 24, and 25. As I stated last time, there are several problems of interpretation that have to be addressed in this, in this passage. The first has to do with identifying what it mean, what, what the term 70 weeks means. Literally in the Hebrew, it is 70 periods of seven. And so that would be, uh, then the next question is, what do those periods of seven indicate days, weeks, months, years? What are they? And we said last time, it is years. We know that from the context. And we looked at some other passages to substantiate that. One of the most significant, of course, is that if you use months, days, or weeks, nothing works out for anything. So it, uh, by logical extension, it's, it's, um, years. Secondly, we had to understand what the six purposes were and ask the question, have any of them been fulfilled? The answer was, no, they have not been fulfilled. They are all fulfilled at the end of the tribulation period. Third interpretation problem is to discern what the starting point is. That is, in uh, for those of you who like to expand your vocabulary, we'll learn a Latin phrase here, and that is terminus a quo. That's how the scholars talk about that. Most of us would just say the starting point and the end point. Uh, this is the literally the time or the uh, the starting or the point from which, and then the other term is uh, terminus ad quo to terminus ad quem, the point to which. And so you have a starting point and an end point here for this 490 years, and we need to discern and determine what that is. Now, the starting point of verse 25 tells us that we're able to understand this prophecy. So you are to know and discern, Gabriel says to Daniel, which means that if Daniel is able to understand and interpret this passage, then we are, if we're going to have any benefit at all from this passage, or if the Jews are going to have any benefit at all from this passage, they're going to be able to accurately understand what the starting point is and what the end point is and what the breakdown is and everything that that is included. So this is not one of those passages that people can just sort of fold their hands and say, well, you know, that's just too complicated. We really don't know what's going to happen in history. Now, for many years, many centuries, People sort of had that view because of certain uh, problems related to the calendar, and that is, in a sense, the fourth, the fourth uh, um, interpretive problem, and that is uh, just exactly what calendar is being used here. Then, when we get down to verse seven or twenty-seven, 
will, 26 and 27, we'll have to answer the question, who is the prince who is to come? And then in verse, uh, then, then 6, we have to answer the question, who confirms the covenant in verse 27, and to whom does, does the pronoun he refer? So those are six key questions we have to answer. Now, last time, we started looking at the breakdown of this in terms of the starting point. There were, I said, four basic decrees in ancient history that were candidates for this starting point. The first is Cyrus' decree in 538 B.C. for the Jews to return to the land and rebuild the temple. Now, we said that doesn't work for two reasons. Number one, it, it fails because of the chronology. It comes out uh, way too early for the Messiah. Nothing happened if you work it out. But secondly, it was to rebuild, just to, to recolonize the land, as it were, and they were authorized to rebuild the temple. But that's not the point of verse 25. It is a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And I said last time that has to do with the full development of Jerusalem as a functioning city. It's rebuilt uh, plaza and moat. The term plaza refers to the open square, the market, where business will be conducted, so it refers to the economic life of Jerusalem. And then the term moat refers to the trench that would have to be cut in order to lay the foundation for the city wall. So that's a reference to the military defense of Jerusalem. So it has to do with the full orb function of a city, or almost a city-state as it was at that time, which would be functioning economically and have military protection. And, of course, one principle that is recognized here or, or by that statement is the principle of freedom through military victory, that God authorized a military uh, in the ancient world. And we know from our study of the fulfillment of this prophecy in Nehemiah that Nehemiah had to put together a ragtag militia in order to defend Jerusalem from the uh, inhabitants of the land at that time who, at least in spirit, although not ethnically related, were uh, comparable to the modern Palestinians. They wanted to do everything they could out of anti-Semitism to prevent the Jews from rebuilding Jerusalem. So current affairs are not any different. They're uh, just a second chapter of a long, or another chapter in a long history of inhabitants in that region wanting to prevent Israel from having control of the city that God calls his beloved city, and the mount that is the temple mount, the mountain of God. And as I said last time, this is Mount Zion. It is the original site, Mount Moriah, where Abraham uh, was to sacrifice Isaac. God provided a substitute there. It is the place where Aruna had his threshing floor that David bought, where they built, uh, where Solomon built the first temple, and where the second temple is built, and where today stands the uh, the uh, Dome of the Rock, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and four other mosques, I believe, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And it's controlled by the Arabs, even though all, ultimate control of the Temple Mount goes to Israel. Israel took control, seized control, in the 1967 war, but they immediately turned back uh, operational uh, day-to-day control to the Arabs, though it's the Jews the Israeli police that provide protection of the Temple Mount. It is the Israelis who keep Jews off the Temple Mount. It is the Israeli courts who continue to protect the sovereignty of the Arabs over the Temple Mount, even though the the uh, Jews took control, seized control, when they defeated the Arab armies in 1967. 
So there's a lot of interesting factors and implications of this uh, prayer that Daniel has had, uh, and the timing here all relates as as the Scripture says for the, for your people and your holy city, verse 24, and then back in verse 20 we read that that Daniel was praying for the holy mountain of my God, and that is uh, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, there the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So we are to be able to discern certain things about this prophecy. Now, Cyrus' decree doesn't work, neither does the decree by Darius Hystaspes. Now, that's not the Darius we studied in Daniel. This is one of his descendants uh, mentioned in Ezra chapter 6. little typo there. Ezra chapter 6, the third decree is the decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus, which was given in 457 B.C. Now, that's the same Artaxerxes as the uh, fourth decree, which is in 444 B.C., but only this, this final decree in 444 B.C. is the one that to authorize Nehemiah. We find this in Nehemiah chapter 2. That's the only decree that authorized a rebuilding of the city's fortifications and a completion of the city. So that is the candidate. We grafted out the decree to restore. We know from studying archaeological records, and a number of studies have been done in the last century, the most famous, and really the groundbreaking study was done by Sir Robert Anderson, who was former uh, head of uh, Scotland Yard and was a fine believer and a student of Scripture. He discovered that uh, it was this decree, and then he started working out the details. Now, there were some calendar problems in his era. I don't want to get distracted by going into the calendar problems, but throughout this whole study, there's one little caveat, and that is if our understanding of all of these uh, dates based on, uh, sec- based on secular chronology are correct, there could be off some, but as in the 20th century, a lot of study was done. A lot of corrections were made. If you ever read Anderson's book, you'll discover that he uses the date 445 B.C. And it's interesting, if you read anything written before about 1960, that the dates you'll discover are dates, it's like I usually use the date 722 B.C., you'll find 723 B.C. I say 585 B.C., you'll read 586 B.C. You'll find this one-year discrepancy, and that's because in the early 60s, a man by the name of Edwin Keeley wrote a complex, complicated book dealing with all the ancient chronological systems called The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings. And unlike most theologians and most read liberal scholars and liberal theologians, he took the numbers in Scripture seriously but discovered that because we didn't understand certain schemes, certain ways in which they counted the, the reigns of kings, the way they counted the, ruler, the, the ruling years, that our chronology was off. So he refined chronology. Everybody accepts his conclusions, liberal or conservative. And um, the, one of the consequences of that is that many dates got shifted by, by one year. That's why if you read anything beyond that, you'll see a slightly different uh, number. Now, the decree to restore was given in March 5th, 444 B.C. And we know from verse 26, or from verse 25, that this initial time period is broken into two. There are actually three time periods. There's a seven-week time period, a 62-week time period, and a one-week time period. 
Seven plus 62 is 69 weeks to cover the first time period. There's no break. If you read the text, it simply says there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. There's clearly no break between the two. They flow together, but they do distinguish something. And that is the first seven year, seven weeks are actually 49 years was the period of uh, disruption during which the city was rebuilt. So that first set, that seven represents the period during which the city was being reconstructed, and then the 62 weeks uh, for a total of 69 weeks. If we take those numbers and we multiply them out, seven times seven equals 49 years. 49 uh, times 360 equals 17,640 days, or 48.3 years. So that takes us then from 444 B.C. to 395 B.C., and that's the time period where they're reconstructing the temple. Now, why do we use 360-day years? This seems to be um, confusing for some people. Actually, we, have, we know we have a 365 and a quarter day year. That's how long it takes for the earth to uh, revolve around the sun. Why do we use a 360-day year? And last time I went through the evidence from Genesis 7:11 and Genesis 8:3 and 4 that this seems to be the biblical pattern back to the flood, and also in Revelation 11, verses 2 and 3, and a number of other passages in Revelation, it's clear by comparing the data that these are 360-day years. For example, Daniel 9.27 talks about the fact that this last week, the 70th week, is divided into two segments. That that's the same as his other phrase, time, times, and a half a time, which is mentioned in Daniel 7.25, Daniel 12.7, and Revelation 12.14. This is equated to the uh, chronology of 1,260 days, given in Revelation 12.6 and 11.3. Furthermore, this same period is also referred to as a 42-month period in Revelation 11:2 and 13:5. Thus, we come to the conclusion that if 42 months equals 1,260 days, and that equals time times and a half a time, and that equals a half a week. Therefore, a month equals 30 days, and 30 times 12 is 360 days. So we have a 360-day year. Now, why do we have a 360-day year? Now, this is something interesting, just a little extra free information here. Modern, most modern scholars look at the ancients and they say, why do they have a 360-day year? They just, well, they just weren't smart enough to figure out a calendar. And to a lot of people who don't know a whole lot, that sounds like that might be an adequate explanation. The problem is that we're talking about the people who laid the foundations and built the pyramids, people who understood trigonometry and geometry. The ancient Egyptians uh, were able to calculate to a, within a very close uh, approximation the circumference of the earth. Now, they didn't believe in a flat earth. They were able to, just on the basis of mathematical skills alone, calculate the circumference of the earth. We're talking about people who mapped the heavens. We're talking about people who invented navigational systems. We're, pe- we're talking about people who were very advanced. I mean, the Persians invented algebra. You'll find that in today's debate, there's going to be a lot of discussion about the glorious era of the Arabs. 
Well, it was only glorious because they were transmitters of more ancient information, and they rediscovered the algebra uh, that was really invented by the by the uh, Persians and the Babylonians. So they were mathematically astute. So how come they had a 360-day year? I mean, just think about it. If you're five five and a quarter days short, then in ten years you're going to be 52 days short. In 20 years, you're going to be 104 days short, and that means you're going to start planting, doing your spring planting in the middle of August. Wait a minute. Or if you're in Texas, the middle of May. You know, we have people listen to tape down in Texas. They don't understand that in Connecticut you can't plant until after Memorial Day. You know, they're not. By Memorial Day, their crops are burned up. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you're if you're off by five days, then in a matter of 10, 20, 30 years, in a matter of 50 or 60 years, you're going to be celebrating Christmas in the middle of the summer. So it would seem that if you've got a couple of brain cells connecting, that you would recognize that your calendar system was off. Well, they didn't do that. So there's one of you have one of really one of two options, and the first option we just dismissed, and that is that they were just ignorant. And the second option is no, they weren't ignorant. We're ignorant. Because something, perhaps something changed. And there have been a few uh, revolutionary thinkers. They're usually rejected by the status quo in the, uh, in the universities. But people like, um, uh, Velikovsky and some others who have taken at face value many of the ancient legends and stories and tried to put them together. The problem with uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky is that he was a secularist and an atheist, and he's trying to really come up with just a naturalistic explanation for events like the Exodus, the miracles at the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, many other events that took place in the Bible, including Joshua's long day, the uh, solar shadow, I mean the shadow that backs up the stairs in Hezekiah's day. He's trying to take those as being accurate, and he's going to explain them through some kind of astronomical phenomenon. And I think he's hit on something, is something apparently did happen astronomically in about the 7th century B.C. We have not only the episode in, uh, recorded in Second Kings of the uh, shadow that uh, Hezekiah was looking at, wanted a sign from God, that God heard his prayer, and so the shadow backs up. It comes down the stairs and then goes back up the stairs, indicating that there's some kind of reversal of uh, solar movement. Also at that time... There's a there's an obscure reference in Second Chronicles to the fact that during that same time period, the Jews celebrated Passover in the middle of the second month instead of in the first month. Now Passover is set to be the 15th of Nisan, which is the first year in the ceremonial calendar. So why would they violate it one year and celebrate Passover in the middle of the next month unless there's something happening chronologically that is changing things? And by the time you get into uh, the period of the middle to late fifth, uh, 6th century B.C., which is our time frame, 537 B.C., then it seems like most of the ancient civilizations are beginning to make adjustments in their calendars from a 360-day year to a 365-day year. It's also interesting that when the ancients developed the foundations for modern geometry and trigonometry, when they d- defined a circle, they gave that circle 360 degrees, not 365 degrees, because a complete circle would be the complete circumference as the, uh, the path of the earth around the sun. So either they were making mistakes or there were 
some odd things going on astronomically that changed the calendar system on the earth. When we come to Revelation, my simple point on this is when we come to Revelation, everything's in a 360-day year again, and just being a little bit speculative, perhaps what happens, we know in the early seal judgments at the beginning of, of uh, the tribulation, there are astronomical phenomena. There are, there's a burning mountain that falls to the earth, which could be an asteroid. There are things like that that happen. Perhaps there will be, during the tribulation, something else occur that puts the earth back on track to a 360-day year. And all of this is just to show that God controls everything in the universe, and even when you have a doomsday scenario like we have in movies like Armageddon and some of the other uh, movies that have come along suggesting that if an asteroid hits the earth, everything's going to all be over with, that apparently there were things like that that, that occurred in the ancient times, and God controls history and protects planet Earth. That just gives us tremendous, tremendous comfort. So we've gone through the passages. We've seen the rationale for 70 weeks. And so when we come to our, that the, these uh, years are 360-day years, so when we calculate these 70 weeks, we multiply 69 times 7 times 360. That comes to 173,880 days. From March 5th, 444 B.C., you add 173,880 days, and you arrive at March 30th, uh, A.D. 33, which is the uh, Palm Sunday, the day of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what we call Palm Sunday. It's not was not necessarily on Sunday. I think it's very likely it was on the Sabbath on that Saturday. Verification, 444 B.C. to A.D. 33. Then, then you subtract 1 because there's no year 0 when you go from B.C. to A.D., that comes to 476 years. 444 plus 33 is 477. Minus 1 is 476. You multiply 476 years times our calendar of 365 and a quarter days, and you come up with 173,855 days. There are 25 days between March 5th and March 30th. You add that together, and that totals 173,880 days. So now we've cross-checked. See? When you do this, you realize the Bible calls upon every intellectual skill known to man, including math. The Bible addresses everything. So from the decree to restore to Messiah the Prince is 173,880 days, and that ends on March 30th, A.D. 33, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Then we read in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. And it's clear from the Hebrew word, ahare, that this is, the, this is afterward. It is following the, the 69 weeks end, and it is after that period, not during the period, not in the period. There are clear Hebrew prepositions for during and in. This is after that period. The Messiah is cut off. And then we're told, if you look at verse 26, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the 
two major events are said to take place after this period. They're not in the 70th week. They're after the 69th week, but the text itself says it's before the 70th week. There's a clear textual break. Now, I'm making a point out of this because I want you to pay attention to the fact that I'm not coming along and imposing a chronological scheme or a gap here into in the text. There is no gap between the seven weeks and the 62 weeks. The Scripture just clearly states that there will be uh, seven weeks and 62 weeks. But then we're told after the 62 weeks and the entirety of verse 26 takes place, before there's any mention of the beginning of the 70th week. Now, the reason I say that is we're living in an era when the views that we take on this are under attack, and there are people who come along and say, well, that's just old dispensationalism, and they're just forcing that on the text. And that's coming out of the covenant theology school of prophecy known as amillennialism or postmillennialism. They're two different systems, both from Calvinism. But in the recent years, there's been a tremendous rise in popularity of a system called preterism. And preterism is from the Latin word meaning past. And their basic position is that all of these prophecies were simply uh, references to Jerusalem's destruction in 70 A.D. All of prophecy, all of revelation, Matthew 24, all of that's been fulfilled we're living in the kingdom. Now, I know you didn't know that you were living in the millennium, and the last time you saw a rattlesnake, you didn't exactly want to put your, put your hand down that rattlesnake den, even though the scripture says it's a, the child will put his hand in a cobra den. You feel like that applies to rattlesnakes as well, and, and the copperheads. But, when we look at this passage, we see that we are justified in putting a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week, and we don't know how long a period that is. So far, it's been over 2,000 years. But the the 62 weeks, it says, after the 62 weeks, Messiah the Prince is cut off, and the people of the Prince who is to come destroy the city and the sanctuary. The sanctuary is a reference to the temple, and that occurred under Titus, in 70 A.D., when the Roman 10th Legion destroyed and completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and left uh, no stone unturned. So it was completely wiped out, and Jews were removed from the land, and Israel ceased to function as a nation. Now, verse 27 is going to talk about the coming prince. That coming prince is going to... Uh, create an event called the abomination of desolation, desecrate the temple halfway through the tribulation. Both of these events have to do with Israel, with, uh, as the text says, for your people and your holy city, does not have to do with the church. So as members of the church, the body of Christ, believers during this age are not going to be present on the earth when this last week occurs. There will be a returned emphasis to Israel. Now, in verse 26, we have the first phrase, after the 62 weeks. And then we have the second phrase, which is, the Messiah will be cut off. And that is a reference to the cutting off of Messiah, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, at the first advent. 
And we're told here two things, that the Messiah will be cut off, and secondly, that he will have nothing. So this passage looks at the Messiah in a political context, that he came to offer the kingdom to Israel, but they rejected it, so there is no kingdom. That's what have nothing means, that the Messiah at that point in history will not have political power, will not have a kingdom on the earth. Christianity, therefore, fulfills the prophecy of the Old Testament that worshiping... um, that that we do not worship Jesus as a reigning king. Now that's something you have to watch out for. How many songs do you find in the hymnal that have to do with with the king? Well, Jesus may be the king sovereign of the universe, but he is not ruling as messianic king and does not rule as messianic king until he returns at the second coming as the king of kings and lord of lords. Right now he is without kingdom. And so don't, uh, that's one of the problems with a lot of hymns. Hymn writers usually don't know enough theology, and they always, or else they have a bad theology, and so they get caught up in this kind of a problem. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Notice, it does not say the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The prince who is to come refers to the Antichrist. This is the one who, in verse 27, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. It's interesting to note that the same word for prince that is used of the Antichrist is the same word uh, that is used to refer to a Messiah the prince in other passages and indicates his role as a substitute uh, Messiah. The people of the prince who is to come are going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, we know from history that the people who destroyed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple were the Romans. Now, the prince who is to come is a prophetic term, and that refers to the Antichrist in the future. So if the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary were Romans, then that indicates that the prince who is to come is going to come out of the Roman Empire. And that fits with the study that we had in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, especially Daniel 7 verse 8, which talked about the Antichrist as the little horn that came out of the, 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 the fourth beast. So that indicates that the Antichrist is not going to come out of Africa. He's not going to come out of Asia. He's not going to be an Arab. He's not going to come out of Islam. He is going to be a Western European. Now, that has some interesting implications for today because uh, right now, if you look at the statistic, Islam is the fastest-growing religion not only worldwide but also in Europe. In fact, there are seven Muslims for every Christian in France, and it is uh, rapidly uh, taking over are passing the statistics for Catholic Roman Catholics in Europe. And if the trend continues, it would seem that in another uh, 20 or 30 years, they would be able to accomplish what they failed to accomplish at the Battle of Tours and at Vienna back in, in, in during the Middle Ages, and uh, that is to take over Western Europe. In fact, thanks to our former president, whose name I won't mention, uh, we had the establishment a couple of years ago of the first Muslim nation in Western Europe, in in, in the Balkans. So uh, Islam has definitely got a toehold in Europe now, something they never had in the past. Charles Martel defeated them at the Battle of Tours, and then uh, they were defeated in the uh, 
early 1500s outside of Vienna. It seems to me that if what Daniel records is going to take place, then it's not going to be a then Islam is not going to be a powerful force at this time. And the reason is, as we're going to see next week when we get into verse 27, that there will be a nation Israel. In order for the Antichrist, the prince who is to come, to have a covenant with them, there has to be a political entity, Israel. For him to desecrate the temple, there has to be a temple. I don't see Arafat or the PLO or the Arab bloc today being real excited about giving up control of the Temple Mount. But obviously they are going to do that. That suggests to me that something is going to happen to uh, defang to demilitarize and destabilize the Arabic bloc so that they are not a threat at the beginning of the tribulation. And it's very possible that this war on terror and many of the events that are going on today could lead into a major war that destroys the the, uh, the power of the Arabs. Uh, that's just something that we will know when it occurs. We don't know how it will occur. There are many different uh, scenarios that could bring that about, but it seems to me that between now and the beginning of the tribulation, the Arabs have to be destroyed militarily so that these events can take place. Now, the past, verse 26 goes on to say, The prince who is to come, will des- the, the, the people, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So this indicates that that Western Europe, this Western European bloc, is going to be alive and well and militarily strong and under the leadership of the Antichrist during the tribulation. And then we read in the next verse, its end will come with a flood. Now, what are we talking about here? You have this neuter pronoun, its. That refers back to the sanctuary. That is the nearest um, antecedent to the pronoun. And rule of grammar is whenever you have an indefinite pronoun, it always refers to its nearest antecedent, and that would be sanctuary and, and or city. Its end will come with a flood. That's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem uh, and the temple in 70 A.D., and the term flood has to do uh, in Scripture. It is the Hebrew word shetef, and it refers in prophetic literature to military invasion, being overwhelmed by superior military force. It's used that way in Daniel 11.22 and again in Nahum 1.8 to describe the military defeat of the Assyrians. So when it says its end will come with a flood, that indicates a massive military defeat. And then it goes on to say this isn't quite the end of Jerusalem. It says even to the end, and I take it that the word end there refers to the end of history, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. The point is that Jerusalem will continuously be at the focal point of war, and that is true in history. For example, in 70 A.D., Titus and the Romans destroyed Israel. Then again, in 135 A.D., Hadrian reconquered the city during the Bar Kokhba rebellion and declared it to be a Gentile city and, re- and took all the Jews uh, out of the city. Again, in 614 A.D., the uh, Sassanid Empire, which were the descendants of the Parthians and the and uh, we would know it as Iran today, the Sassanid Empire defeated. Uh, the uh, Turks and took control of, or defeated the Byzantine Empire and took control of Jerusalem. 
Then in 637 A.D., the Arabs took control, invaded from the south. Then in 1517 A.D., the, the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, Tur- Ottoman Turks took it over, and Jerusalem became part of the Ottoman Empire. And that's important because until World War I, when the Ottoman Empire was allied with the Germans, until World War I, Jerusalem and the area, the region we call Palestine, was part of the Ottoman Empire. The inhabitants were Arabs. They were not Palestinians. There was no Palestinian nation. There was no Palestinian state. There were no Palestinian people. There were Ottoman Turks, and there were Arabs who were under the heel of the Ottoman Turks. And the Arabs that lived there were no different from the Arabs that lived on the western, or the eastern side of the Jordan, and no different from the Arab Bedouin Arabs that lived down in Arabia. In 1917, after World War One, the British uh, controlled Jerusalem under the leadership of General Allenby. Then, in and during that time, from 1917, the end of World War One until the end of World War Two, there were numerous uh, uh, uprisings by the Arab population there. Incidentally, in uh, 1848, the Pittsburgh uh, Dispatch recorded that the population in Jerusalem was 40,000, 30,000 were Jews, the, uh, about 9,000 and some odd were Christians, and only a less than a 1,000 were Muslims. So that uh, indicates that there's always been a strong, dominant Jewish presence in uh, Palestine. In fact, the term Palestinian was a term that when applied to the Arabs in the early part of the 20th century was rejected because the Arabs a 100 years ago thought the term Palestinian was a synonym for Jewish. So Israel clear I mean that area had a dominant Jewish population and was not deemed an, an Arab nation or an Arab country. After World War II when and 1948 when Israel declared their independence, five Arab nations invaded and were defeated. Again, in 1967, the Arabs invaded and the Jews defeated them. And at that time, the Jews took control of Jerusalem, even though they gave part of it back to the Arabs. And there have been numerous fights since then, including the present um, present uprising. Now, all these previous occupations of Jerusalem had been uh, uh, when Jerusalem was being ruled by another country. The Turks ruled it from Turkey. Previous to that, the Sassanids ruled it from uh, Iran. The Arabs, when they were in control, they ruled Jerusalem from the south. There was never a local government in Israel ruling Jerusalem until 1967 when the Israeli government took it over from Jordan. Remember, when Israel defeated the Arabs in 67, up to that point, from 19, we'll see a map in a minute, up to that point, Jerusalem and the West Bank was part of Jordan. So when they were defeated, they weren't defeating any Palestinians. The Jordans never recognized any Palestinians. All the time the West Bank was under the domination of the uh, of Jordan, they, there was never any movement to recognize an independent Palestinian people because, face it, the Arabs who live on 
the west side of the Jordan are no different from the Arabs who live on the east side of the Jordan in the Hashemite uh, kingdom of Transjordan. Same thing about the the, the, one, the folks living down on the Gaza Strip. That was under the control of Egypt, and when Egypt controlled the Gaza Strip, there certainly was no movement. Uh, the Arabs had no no desire to create an independent, uh, so-called independent Palestinian state. This is a uh, something that has been invented by the Arabs for the purpose of carrying out their nefarious schemes to destroy the nation Israel, and no matter what anyone says, don't believe it. In fact, the interesting thing is I was watching... Uh, Watched several news shows recently, and uh, whenever and, I, and when I was in Houston, I was listening to a couple of talk shows late at night. And whenever anybody, any of the talk show hosts, would start going through the information that I'm giving you this evening on the history of uh, Israel, the Palestinians that they have on the show just go crazy. I mean, they just get angry and start yelling and screaming and. They cannot abide to hear the truth. They may not even know the truth. They may be completely sincere in their beliefs because in all of the Arab countries, the press is controlled, and so all they ever hear is the um, is the lie that's put forth in all of the newspapers and, and, and that are controlled by the uh, Arab and Islamic press. So we have to pay attention to history and understand that some important things are happening. Never in history, in all all the years since 70 A.D., has Jerusalem been controlled by a local Jewish government until the 1967 war. So that raises the question, what does the Bible teach about the return of Israel to the land? Does the Bible teach that Israel will return to the land before the tribulation? Now let me ask you a trivia question because I want to I'm going to set you up. Some of you know the answer to this, but some of you don't. But I'm using this to illustrate a point. Who was the first person crowned king over Israel? Who was the first somebody tell me who was the first person crowned king over Israel? Okay, you're wrong. Those of you who are here who that's right, Dave. The day was here when I taught judges. It was Abimelech. See what most of you hear. You know, that was great. You walked into the trap and set me up. What most people hear is not the question. What you heard was, who was the first king God authorized to or anointed to be king over Israel? That's what you heard. That's not what the question was. And we, as evangelicals, we have a tendency when it comes to the future of Israel to only think about the return of saved Jews at the end of the tribulation. So whenever we get into the scriptures, we read anything about the Jews returning to the land, we, it's like we have blinders on, and we immediately think of the fact that the elect are going to be gathered from the four corners of the earth at the end of the tribulation, and all Israel will be saved. That's what everybody thinks of. And we completely gloss over the fact that there must be an international return of Jews, not all Jews, but an international return of Jews to the land at the beginning of the tribulation, and that the Bible clearly teaches that. But there are evangelicals around who have a tremendous blind spot and will will actually go so far as to say that this this, uh, nation Israel today has nothing to do with the, with fulfilled prophecy or biblical prophecy because they're unregenerate. And what I hope to show you is the Bible clearly teaches that there will be a return of unregenerate Jews 
to the land before the tribulation, and that is necessary. And the fact that this hasn't happened for 2,000 years suggests that it's not likely that they're going to be driven into the sea by the Palestinians and that we'll go another 2,000 years before uh, the tribulation takes place. Now, I'm not date-setting. I'm not saying the rapture is going to occur in this generation. That's a distortion of the Matthew 24 passage. I am not saying that... Um, that the tribulation is next year or next month or next decade, but I am saying that the events that we're seeing since 1948 are significant prophetically. Now that brings up another thing I want to caveat I want to put in here. I have I have said and continue to say that no biblical prophecy is necessary to no biblical prophecy is fulfilled before Jesus Christ comes at the rapture, and that's true. However, that's different from saying that some biblical prophecy might be fulfilled or begin to be fulfilled in the church age because it is setting the stage for what will take place after the rapture. And if there is going to be a nation Israel for the Antichrist to sign a peace treaty with, a nation Israel to build a temple, a nation Israel to have a functioning priesthood during the tribulation, then that nation, because if, they, if they've got a functioning priesthood and a functioning temple, folks, the, the, the conclusion is that they're not regenerate, that they've rejected the New Testament. If they believe the New Testament, they, they wouldn't have a functioning uh, priesthood and they wouldn't care about a temple. So it's obvious that, that the scriptures imply that there will be a return of Jews to the land. Now let's look at some passages. The main passage to look at is in Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel predicts a return of Israel in the vision that God gives Ezekiel of the dry bones. You know, this is the dim bones, dim bones, dim dry bones. That's what the inspiration for that song back in the 50s. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones, dead, dry, baked bones. Some have said that this was clearly fulfilled in the ovens of Auschwitz when the bones were baked dry. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I answered and said, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now the dry bones are a picture of Israel scattered throughout all the nations. They're dead as far as a nation goes, and they're dead spiritually. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. There's no life here. Notice it talked about breath, but there's no sinews, there's no flesh, there's no life. It's still dead. The dead bones are being gathered together. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and flesh came upon them. That's the next stage when they are being put together. Some, some suggest that the 
scattering of the bones is Israel and dispersion. I think that's legitimate. Others say that the sinews connecting to the bones fits into the regathering of the nation today before the tribulation. And then as flesh is put on the bones and skin covers the body, that that pictures Israel coming together nationally in the tribulation and then breath into the body is the final conversion of Israel at the end of the tribulation. I think that's, that's, uh, in a general way, that's, that's fairly true. Verse 9, also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Notice, not just Judah, but the entire nation, all Jews. The whole house of Israel, they indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. See, at that point they're regathered, but there's no life. There's no hope. Verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you. Now, that terminology is new covenant terminology, but they are returned to the land before the spirit is put in them. That is important. There is a return to the land before there is regeneration. Then turn back a few chapters to Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33, we read, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. That indicates the wrath. That's a technical term for the tribulation. Uh, Verse 34, And I shall bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. This regathering is in judgment. God would not be judging a regenerate Israel. So this is still Israel as unregenerate. Verse 35, And I shall bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I shall enter into judgment with you face to face, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord. Verse 37, And I shall make you pass under the rod, and I shall bring you into the bond of covenant, and I shall purge from you the rebels. Clearly, this is looking at Israel as unregenerate. I shall purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I shall bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Once again, these verses in Ezekiel 20, 33 to 38 make it clear that there is a regathering before Israel is saved. Then in Ezekiel 22:17 through 22, we have the same message. Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. That means they're unsaved. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because all of you have become dross, therefore... Behold, I am going to gather you into the midst of Jerusalem, gathering them as unsaved. As they gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into the furnace to blow fire on it in order to melt it, so I shall gather you in my anger. Notice, in my, in my anger, it's in wrath. It is during the, during or before the tribulation in judgment. And in my anger and in my wrath, and I shall lay you there and melt you, and I shall gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath. That is the tribulation. 
and you will be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in the furnace, so you will be melted in the midst of it, and you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath on you. Well, we'll come back next time and look at a few more passages. This is only the first uh, part of the doctrine of what the Bible teaches about the return of Israel to the land, and we will complete that in our study of Daniel 9 next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to look at these important principles, and to understand that Israel is and always will be the apple, the pupil, the center point of your eye. That means that they are still under the Abrahamic covenant. They are still to be blessed. They are never to be cursed. Those who curse curse Israel will in turn be cursed by you. Father, we pray that you would continue to as you work out your plan in history, continue to help us to understand these things. And despite the chaos going on in the world around us and what may come even even more this year, more terrorist attacks, whatever happens, we know that you are in control and we can relax in that. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.